0: The Show Up and Stay podcast. I'm your host, Deanne Knighton. Went
1: away to a rehab, which was a very good experience. I'm very grateful that I went. I was there for two months, from December uh, till February 2021. I was there January 6th during the insurrection. Wouldn't have happened on my watch.
0: (laughs) This is John Mulaney on Saturday Night Live in 2022.
1: ...with a counselor, and you delete and block all of your drug dealer's phone numbers. In some cases, you reach out to a dealer to say, hey, never get in touch with me again.
0: In his monologue, he talks about the process of breaking up with his drug dealer.
1: And then I'm really polite, so I didn't know how to end the text. So I was like, but thank you for all of the nights that became days and your inspired professionalism.
0: So I send the text before I can... Delete- John relays the details of an exchange between the two of them that ends in an unexpected outcome.
1: So I text him. I go, how did it come to be that you sell me drugs? And he wrote back, I don't know. You just kept asking. I like that story. Because there are many tales of drug dealers who have turned innocent people into drug addicts. I might be the first drug addict (laughs) to turn an innocent man into a drug dealer. And that is the promise of dare.
0: Mulaney had a well-publicized relapse during COVID, which he talks about in the Netflix special, Baby J. And in interviews this week, Mulaney shares some regret about the choice to not have his 2014 sitcom focus on his recovery path, which it was originally intended to do. In fact, there's a version at NBC called Mulaney Don't Drink. When Fox picked up the show, Mulaney took in the feedback about leaving that part out of the story and decided against it. In his own words, it was based on the time in my life when I got sober at 23 and had two roommates and was just trying to figure out what does a good person do. That was an actual part of my life, or a pointless gauntlet I threw down in front of myself. These days, John is anything but uncomfortable talking about his struggles with addiction in public. He is what we call a normalizer. With his work being as equally accessible and approachable to those who aren't in recovery as it is for those who are, it shows the power of comedy as one of the great equalizers. It also highlights the way that self-deprecation at times can be an effective way to share humanity. The term normalization originated in the 1800s as a way to refer to the scientific process of returning something to a state of normal as in the way John Mullaney normalizes treatment for substance use disorder. Although I have lots to say about the power of normalization and ending stigma around substance use disorder, that's actually not the topic today. I use this to demonstrate an example of a scientific term that has been evolved and applied to the social world. At the risk of getting very 2016 on you, I've been thinking a lot about science. This is on the heels of the interview we had last week with the Executive Director for Hazelden Betty Ford at the Butler Research Center, Dr. Quinn no. I asked Quinn to weigh in on the use of 12-step method in treatment. She was quick to remind me that there has been extensive research done on 12-step recovery work as a part of successful long-term treatment. But likewise, she was also more than willing to discuss the paradox that exists with this and share some of her own personal understanding. This is something I really appreciated. I am a woman of science, but I am also a woman of spirit, and I don't see that as contradictory. And I think sometimes we set science at odd to spirituality and they don't have to be. I see a lot of spirit and a lot of whatever you want to call God, the universe, higher power, whatever that is. I see a lot of that in science, right? When you see the art and the beauty of science and the world around us, to me, that is spirituality in motion and in action. So I think that there is a way to take that spiritual piece of 12-step for those who resonate with that and integrate that with science in really meaningful ways. This really got me thinking. You have heard me mention my Mormon upbringing, my conversion to Catholicism, and then the space that I have landed, which is Intentionally not affiliated with any institutional religion. But my personal relationship with spirituality has in no way mirrored my religious history. I lacked spiritual connection to both of the religious affiliations I had, but participated mostly for the social structure, with the hope that someday something would click. It didn't. I also stopped looking because I felt like this was not going to be part of my story. My sobriety journey has set me straight on that, somewhat. But as there should be, there's still lots of question marks. That said, it doesn't change the fact that my initial experience with recovery, particularly long-term recovery, once I completed treatment, was very confusing for me. As I sat in AA meeting after AA meeting, I felt the same sort of emptiness, disconnection, longing, and pain that I had felt for many years on church pews. I could not connect. It also made me question my sobriety choices and, in many ways, was leading me down a relapse path, and I knew it. I was told the God I chose to use in my understanding of God as it relates to my work in AA and the Twelve Steps could take many forms and that many atheists and or agnostic individuals have great success with AA. So once again, in a life of always feeling wrong and broken in the spaces I inhabited, I was confirming that message to myself, that I needed to adapt for the space. I just couldn't make it work. When I was 21 and I left the Mormon church after a temple marriage at age 19, The services that offered to support me during this transition were church-sponsored, and my already deepening sense of mistrust grew even further when I felt that the only help that would work for me had dogma attached to it. My skeptical brain could not accept it, and I rejected help. There were other factors in the mix, but this was definitely a driving force. Then I think about this. It is true that many humans who identify as atheist or agnostic have benefited from the 12 steps and the fellowship it offers. Speaking of normalizers, one of the most notable ones is one of my favorite podcast personalities, Dak Shepard of Armchair Expert. He speaks often about his love of the AA program, despite his atheist belief system. I stumbled across an article in the New York Times this week. I not only read the research article from the writer, but also some of the comments. I usually try to stay away from comments, but I'm really trying to be thoughtful as I explore my feelings about this topic. The guest essay was posted on March 11, 2023, and is titled, People Have a Right to Non-Religious Rehab. It's written by Maya Salovitz. She's a contributing opinion writer who covers addiction and public policy. In the article, Maya recounts what we know, which is that the 12 steps to recovery are the most widely used long term treatment program available. She cites that two thirds of American addiction treatment programs for alcohol and other drug disorders, including over 90% of residential treatment centers, use 12 steps. She also posits that in offering this course of treatment, people are forced to very quickly in their recovery face the question of how religious they are. She says this, the first three steps include powerlessness over substance use and turning our will and our lives over to the care of a higher power to restore us to sanity. While some members argue that this power can be anything other than oneself, even a doorknob, it's hard to see this as anything other than a stand-in for a loving God. She also says that the rest of the steps include taking moral inventory, uncovering defects of character, which I've mentioned, that are thought to underlie addiction, and praying for God to remove them. She states that treatment centers are quick to push back, that the 12 steps are spiritual, but not religious. I can definitely see this point as well. She refers to a recent ruling where a Buddhist pilot won a $305,000 judgment against United Airlines after demanding that there should be an alternative addiction treatment to what was being offered to him. The article proceeds to outline the importance of separating religion in treatment. Her final argument states that many people with addiction, including her, find 12 steps helpful, but that that is more likely a result of the peer support, not the actual steps themselves. Taking some time to read through the comments, I am reminded how divisive this topic is. How passionate people are about the value of the program. Many stories recounting their own journey through the 12 steps as atheists and some fairly flippant and aggressive reminders that maybe we're making this too difficult. Maybe we just shouldn't think about it so much. If something works, then it works. And I'm reminded that this issue is bigger than science and I'm forced to circle Right back around again to why this is such a complicated issue, to why it's such a personal issue. And with that, I'm reminded why I'm put off by it because it mirrors an evangelical defense of dogma. And that scares me. And because that scares me, it causes me to discount all of the rest of the value that this particular thing has to offer. This is not a unique problem. It just happens to be the one I'm spending the majority of my time thinking about right now. Show Up and Stay is a 501c3 nonprofit on a mission to build tools and content that will bridge the recovery gap. The recovery gap is the distance between healing from the substance and healing your life. There are so many ways that you can support our project. You can donate at showupandstay.org. You can follow us on Instagram at showupandstayorg. You can follow and subscribe to the podcast on the platform of your choice and take a minute to write a review. Literally, just listening to the podcast on a weekly basis helps. We post new episodes every Tuesday. I like to say we have a bit of technology and science, but primarily storytelling and heart. Now back to the show. It's time for a classic show up and stay pivot. A tangentially related subject. I have mentioned my decision to focus on psychology in my midlife return to education plan of 2023. It's worth mentioning that according to a report by Pew Research Center, 43% of workers have changed careers at least once in their lifetime, and more than half of those who did so did it after the age of 45. So I'm in good company. In fact, there appears to be a great deal of research on this subject. We joke about the midlife crisis. If you look at Erickson's development stages, midlife finds us expressing ourselves somewhere on the spectrum between stagnation and generativity. Generativity is concern for the future. It's that need to nurture and guide younger people and contribute to the next generation. So back on track. The class I'm in currently is called Psychology as a Profession. And although, yes, the focus is on career development in the field of psychology, it is not an exaggeration to say that a good portion of the content is based on ensuring that those who are pursuing the psychology path in fact do view it as a science and are able to support why this is the case. Psychology as a field has a long history that has built a lot of misunderstanding and folklore around it. I'm trying really hard to be a person who is examining all of my own blind spots and biases. So I'm looking very critically at this and taking this class to heart. I know that psychological research and clinical psychology has made a tremendous impact on my life, which to me feels like a pretty rock-solid case study. However, in looking at generativity at this stage of my life, I know that it is just the tip of the iceberg if I really want to try and make an impact. Let's start with some of the areas that psychology has going against it. There are many in the world of science that refer to psychology as a soft science, or in some cases, those who believe it is not a science at all. We'll come back to that one. There is something referred to as the Freud problem, which is the idea that the legacy of Freud and the work that he did during his era has transcended generationally. Yet many of the theories that exist in this sort of widely known group of theories was not properly researched for the time, yet it lives on, a mark on the field of psychology. Additionally, there are very few that are still studying the work of Freud at this date. However, its shadow and legacy lives on framing up people's idea of what psychology is. Another issue is related to the understanding of psychology as a clinical field. It is really important to note that there are fifty-four official APA divisions of psychology, with clinical psychology being only one of those. There's the issue of pseudoscience and what is sometimes referred to as pop psychology, that's showing up on all of our platforms—TikTok, Instagram, etc. That is touting information that is not researched, or really focusing in on things that are maybe more compelling. Whether or not they've been tested, planting seeds in public perception. And these compelling sound bites are certainly going to be more interesting to the general public than a well placed research paper discrediting something after the fact. Unfortunately, some of this pop psychology and pseudoscience kind of just sticks and muddies the field of psychology. It takes a lot of work to make sure that the information that you're looking at is researched properly. Most people aren't going to do it. There are many who feel that the idea of psychology and studying behavior is folk wisdom and just common sense. Why do we need a whole field to talk about it? I really like this passage from Thinking Straight About Psychology by Keith Stanovich. Here he reminds us of the contradictions that live in our collective common sense, so to speak. Most of us have heard or said, Look before you leap. There's a useful, straightforward bit of advice. Except that I vaguely remember admonishing on occasion that he who hesitates is lost. And absent makes the heart grow fonder is a pretty clear prediction of an emotional reaction to separation. But then what about out of sight, out of mind? And if haste makes waste, why do we sometimes hear that time waits for no man? How could the saying two heads are better than one not be true? Well, except that too many cooks in the kitchen spoil the broth. If I think it's better to be safe than sorry, then why do I always believe nothing ventured, nothing gained? If opposites attract, then why do birds of a feather flock together? I have counseled many students to never put off until tomorrow what you can do today, but I hope my last advisee has never heard me say this, because I also just told him, cross that bridge when you come to it. These compelling ideas are sprinkled all throughout our understanding of the way that we behave. We recently had an episode on this very podcast about fables and the idea of sour grapes and how it can be related to the psychological phenomenon of cognitive dissonance. It's interesting to look at and it's interesting to compare to what we have learned with more research, but something so muddied in contradiction. And people feeling pretty rooted in their own understanding of how the world works and the people around them work, it can be hard to break through. What is a science? The first piece is systematic empiricism, which is relying on observation. But observation alone cannot be a science. We know that psychology and observation go hand in hand. So that part makes sense. The next thing is that the knowledge that is gained from this observation must be publicly verifiable, peer-reviewed, and replicable. But remember, kind of like our competing folk wisdom, anytime you put a theory out there, you will very quickly meet someone who said, well, that's not true. My aunt is the exception to that rule which unfortunately to some may serve as more compelling. It serves as a reason that the research is meaningless instead of looking at those situations as an individual case study. And another reality is that not everything that is peer-reviewed is correct. Studies change and they evolve and they are replicated. This is what science does. The last piece is that it needs to be solvable and testable. Otherwise, scientists aren't going to look at it, because they can't follow proper research methods to do so. Scientists work to solve problems with operational definitions, not essentialism. This leads to a really big overall theme that was really important for me to truly understand as I evaluated my place in this field, and that is the idea of falsifiability. Let's talk for a minute about someone named Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush lived in the 1700s and was well-known for a procedure that he developed to help with yellow fever, which was the idea of bloodletting, essentially draining the blood of people who were sick in order to make them better. One of those notable ones is George Washington. But if you look at falsifiability we need to prove it wrong in order to prove it right. Unfortunately, what happened with Benjamin Rush is he put himself in an echo chamber. He basically made the work that he was doing non-falsifiable by stating that those who got better, got better because of the bloodletting and that those who didn't were too sick and so it didn't work. And thus he was able to prove his own point over and over again And unfortunately, it took way longer than it should have for his critics to be heard. One other important thing to note about science in general that applies across all of the sciences, certainly not just psychology, is that so much of the observation and access to individuals to study have been in the form of college students, very non-diverse parts of our population that's why, as we move forward with research in general, diversity, equity, inclusion has to be at the forefront of everything that is being done. I'd bring up some of this information around the question marks of psychology as a field, because I think it relates so well to what I was talking about in the first half of the episode. As I'm working hard to evaluate my humanity from a scientific perspective, Where do we leave room for the philosophical and spiritual part of what we are doing? And I do agree with Dr. Quinn No, that both can be true at the same time. That I can find a way for both to exist in parallel instead of in contradiction of each other. So where does this leave things? There's nothing that has to be mutually exclusive to my own spirituality and belief systems. I want all of that. To live and exist. But I'm definitely not ready to say that I don't continue to see an ongoing problem with the current way that long term recovery networks are set up. And I'm going to continue to explore it because, and part of what drives me is yes, my own personal situation, as well as many that I have talked to that have had some issue with the way this current system is set up. But I'm still being cautious with what that call to action is. Maybe we can keep figuring it out together. If there's one thing you've learned about this podcast, we divert a lot. So if you're feeling a little bit bored with this subject or that maybe I've been hitting it a bit too hard, don't worry. We're going to be pivoting a lot this season, as we always do. We have lots of good things coming up that touch on a lot of different subjects around recovery, but there'll be a through line here. And I'm sure we'll circle back to this at a future episode. For now, I hope you have a wonderful week. Be well. For more information, please visit our website at showupandstay.org. You can follow us on Instagram at showupandstayorg. If you're interested in collaboration or being a guest on our show, please email us at infoshowupandstay.org. At This podcast is written, created, and produced by yours truly. We feature original music created and produced by the wickedly talented Katie Hare.